guys. I am fantasy author J.H. Fleming. And I am science fiction and fantasy author and sometimes a pulp author, Philip Dreyer Duncan. And with us, as always, the man who is chaotic evil in the morning, but chaotic good by the afternoon. He's our paladin. Hey, Chris. Hi, Phil. And our guest this week, you know what? Every week when we have a guest on, I'm like, our guest is very special and I'm very excited they're here. And it's true because obviously I started a podcast to talk to my favorite authors anyway. Surprise. (laughs) But this week's guest is also very special and I'm very excited he's here. But let me say this. Our guest this week is who I want to be when I grow up. (laughs) (laughs) This week, we've got the man, the myth, the legend, crime fiction author Gary Phillips is with us. Uh, no, thank you. 20 something novels, anthologies, comic books, TV shows. You've done it all, Gary. That's it. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> he even allowed me to play in his universe one time, his Nate Hollis universe. And that was, as I understand it, the hardest time of his entire career that he had to edit me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, don't believe all the rumors, but that's okay. It's all right. <laughs> you were the writer and co-producer of the FX TV show Snowfall. Yes. You have eaten over 4,000 donuts, according to your website. According to the website, <laughs> my God. I've slacked off some, though, in my, my old age. <laughs> that's probably for the best. Yeah, it is probably for the best, it is, truly. <laughs> I wanted to call out your last novel, One Shot Harry. I wanted to just give the audience a little bit of like, here's a two blurbs from Gary's last book. The first one says, for 30 years, Phillips has been a must-read writer, and One Shot Harry is probably his best ever. Tense and suspenseful, of course, but also deep, resonant, and intelligent. It's a story that needed to be told, and therefore a book that needs to be read. And that was a blurb from Lee Child. It was indeed. He's a lovely man. This next one is probably the best blurb I've ever heard for a book. And it says, in the tradition of Dashiell Hammett, makes us feel that the war he's waging is for our own salvation by Walter Mosley. Indeed. And I worked with Walter on uh, Snowfall. Did you? That's really cool. Yeah. yeah, he and I have known each other, good Lord, a couple of decades, maybe maybe more than a couple of decades. Very cool. Yeah, I want to talk about that some more for sure. But also on One Shot, Harry, I saw this list and I was like, God, Gary, it's ridiculous. Finalist for the 2023 Nero Award. A Washington Post Best Mystery and Thriller of 2022. Booklist Editor's Choice of Best Books for 2022. Choice Reads, The Best Historical Crime Fiction of 2022. Crime <laughs> Reads, The Best Noir Fiction of 2022. I mean, it just goes on and on, man. The accolades. Look at you. Yeah, look at that. Killing it. One is just, I think, partly it's the culmination, right, of all these years of writing and learning what to put in and what to take out. And by the way, also having a fabulous editor. And I think that all helps, you know, make One Shot Harry the book that it was. And, you know, obviously we'll talk about this down the line. Hopefully that'll show up in the sequel as well. Very nice. Yeah. And then your last accolade I wanted to call out. I mean, and obviously this is the big one. You did the blurb for my book, (laughs) The Blade Mage. (laughs) Harry did the blurb. He's on the front cover. (laughs) <laughs> that's it. There you go. That, that, that's, what, that's all that counts. That's right. <laughs> so I don't know if you remember this, but I've got to talk about how I met you. So Gary was the guest of honor at the very first convention I was ever a guest speaker at. And I was one of the only kind of local people. 
And so my publisher hunted me down and was like, hey, our guest of honor is looking for a barbecue joint. Can you give him a recommendation? So I was like, yeah, sure. So I talked to Gary and I told him where to go. And a few hours later, I saw him and said, hey, how was that? And he was like, oh, no, that was good. That was good. And this uh, museum you guys have here, that art museum is just wonderful. I, it's unbelievable. And I looked at him and I said, oh, um, I've never been. And he looks down at me. So you have to understand, you have to understand Gary, Gary's like 18 feet tall, give or take an inch or two, right? Not hardly, but anyway. <laughs> so he looks down at me and he goes, young man, young man, you have not been to that wonderful museum. And I thought, oh, Gary thinks I'm an idiot now. So... <laughs> I go another, uh, I don't know, like a year or two later or something, a few years later, I was at a convention again down in Biloxi, Mississippi, and Gary yeah. was again yeah. the guest of honor. <laughs> and uh, my sister traveled with me for that one. And we got all set up for the convention on Friday, Friday afternoon, and we were strolling out the door to go find some food. And my publisher had made a recommendation as we're strolling by, Gary's sitting there, he's like, man, I'm starving. I'm going to go to the green room or something. And our publisher's like, hey, go, no, go with them. Go with them. Mm. I'm like, all right. So we load Gary up. And again, he's like 18 feet tall. And we <laughs> we pack him into my little Subaru WRX. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, man, this is the guy who thinks I'm an idiot over the museum thing. Maybe he doesn't remember me, you know. <laughs> but five minutes into eating lunch, we're just laughing our faces off. And we basically just continued laughing throughout the whole convention. The thing that always sticks out to me that I'd still tackle about every time I think about it is at one point we were standing in a hotel room and we were just, I don't know, laughing about something stupid. And I think somebody, and I can't remember who it was, somebody made a comment to the effect of like, I don't know, you guys must have been friends for a long time or something. And I go, (laughs) I go, well, no. We're brothers. We're twin brothers. <laughs> and <laughs> without missing a beat, Gary's right behind me. Goes, yeah, that's right. That's right, Phil. We're yep, our whole lives. Yep, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> but the thing about Gary that the reason I was was so adamant about having you as an early guest on the podcast. So here's a serious thing I remember about Gary, and at that convention. I can very clearly remember sitting in a panel, and I don't remember what the panel was about. So Gary wasn't on the panel, but he was sitting in the audience. And the combined panel together, probably none of us had as much experience combined as Gary, right? (laughs) But Gary Phillips, best-selling author, guest of honor, is sitting in the crowd, and he's the most engaged audience member asking us questions about how we did craft, how do we do this, and what do we think about this? Because he still just wanted to learn. And that always stuck out to me. And mm. I was like, I want to be Gary Phillips when I grow up. That's who I want to be as an author. No matter how big I get, no matter how successful, I always want to be that dedicated. Well, listen, oh, that's lovely, Phil. Thank you. But really, it is true, right? We are always learning. I mean, listen, man, here I am, you know, in my 60s. But if you're not learning, man, and if you're not, you know, kind of adapting then you're just repeating the same tricks. And I'm as guilty of it as anybody else. Man, I'll be writing something. And I'm in the middle of it. I'm going, ah, this is too easy. I've done this, you know, 
10, 20 times before. I've got to do it a different way. I've got to, whatever it is, right? Get to the character a different way, or I've got to set that mm-hmm. scene a slightly different, or I've got to set that reaction different. Because otherwise, you know, you're just doing it by rote. And then, listen, you'll know it, and the reader will know it. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. So let's talk about what you've got. You've got some stuff upcoming that we should probably plug for you, right? There we go. Yes. That's why I'm here. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I already mentioned One Shot Harry. That's out. It came out last year. Still available. Still amazing. And upcoming in October, you have, is that right? October? That's correct. The Unvarnished Gary Phillips, a Mondo Pulp collection from Three Rooms Press. Yes. What's this about? So what that is about is it collects some of my stuff from the world of pulp, as well as some of my mashup stories. But I suppose in particular, then, the audience for this podcast, I imagine, ranges over a great deal of genres and material. But as you know, Phil, we dabble in the world of new pulp. And so in that regard, there's a story in there from Asian pulp, as well as from black pulp, both put out by our buddy uh, Tommy Hancock at Pro Save Productions. And there's some other stuff that's appeared Mm -hmm. in either larger or smaller anthologies over its period. And it's, again, more of my pulp. There's also more sort of sci-fi. For instance, there's a astral projecting hitman <laughs> short story that, that shows up. There's Demon of the Track, which was in this great anthology put out by a guy here in Southern California. It's called Pop the Clutch, which I was very happy to be in the company of uh, Joe R. Lansdale and a few other folks uh, of that ilk. Oh, very cool. And so anyway, all that to say is there's a kind of a range of stuff, <clears throat> some of it actually from anthologies that I've edited as well. For instance, there's a character in there the Black Pimpernel, and he appeared in the Obama Inheritance, the 15 Stories of Conspiracy Noir that also Three Rooms Press brought out a few years ago that won the Anthony Award for Best Anthology. Anyway, so all that to say is there's a range of material and a range of kinds of time periods as well as some satirical and some a bit more straightforward and some blend of crime fiction and sci-fi. So I'm, I'm really happy that Three Rooms is bringing it out. Yeah, that's very cool. And then next year, I believe you have the sequel to One Shot Harry, right? Yes, Ash, Dark as Night. And I'm kind of finishing the second round of edits and some rewrites based on more notes from my meticulous but very thought-provoking editor at Soho Crime. And I guess our third round will be more towards line edits, but there might be even some more fine-tuning. But anyway, all that to say is I'm, I'm very happy with where things are at with that particular manuscript and looking forward to, you know, that coming out as well. Yeah. Next year. Oh, and I should mention just parenthetically, my first book, my first novel, which was published in, uh, this is how long ago it was in 1994. It's called Violent Spring. And it's set in the aftermath of the events here in Los Angeles of 92. So that book was called Violent Spring and it came out all those years ago. And it was optioned actually by HBO all those years ago. And, you know, we can talk about that too when we get to the TV stuff. Okay. But that's going to be reprinted by Soho Crime as well. Okay, cool. And then you also are doing something with your character Decimator Smith from Black Pulp, right? Yes, exactly. He's shown up in both Black Pulp 1 and 2 from Pro Se. And now he's going to mm-hmm. be in a uh, Moonstone. Joe Gentile, who does uh, Moonstone books and comics is putting out something called, uh, I think, Triple Threat. I think he's done several of these things. But anyways, where you sort of combine three longish short stories in, under one banner. And he's going to show up in that with a guest appearance of, I guess he's now a public domain character, Super Detective Jim Anthony. But it takes place in Los Angeles in the 30s. 
Very cool. So as always, you have stayed busy. You're like a machine. Well, yeah. You know, it beats sitting around. And I think we could all attest to the fact that writing is just, you know, it's just this thing, man. You got to, once you get the itch, you just got to scratch it. Uh, there's, there's, yes. there's no two ways about it. Yeah, 100%. It just doesn't stop, right? No, exactly. And I'd be remiss if I didn't call out before we go on. JH, I believe you have an announcement. Oh, yes. Yesterday, my folk band's first single was released. So that is now pretty much everywhere you could think to listen to music. Spotify, Amazon Music, Apple Music, YouTube Music, Pandora, iHeartRadio, all over the place. But what's it called? The band is yeah. Wildwood Minstrels, <laughs> and the song is Black as the Color. Yes. Yes. <laughs> nice. Nice. I might steal that from my next title for the One Shot Harry book. I don't know. I like that. Black is the Color. Sure. <laughs> that is a, um, it's a traditional folk song. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. There you go. All right. So, Gary, you already kind of talked about what you've got going on, but what else are you, you got anything else you're working on right now or? Yeah, I was working on a novella and I guess we'll also get to this, you know, I'm, as a member of the WGA Writers Guild of America West, I'm in the middle of our strike. Mm -hmm. So I've been getting my steps at either, uh, mostly I go to Amazon studios, not because I have a particular bone to pick with Amazon per se. It's just that it happens to be fairly near to my house, so it's easier to get there. But I've, you know, gone to, uh, we went to, we had like a novelist slash, novelist who write te television day at Paramount on Monday. Michael Conley, to drop a name, Michael Conley was there, and Ali Goldberg, who I know, and Jordan Harper, Def Chaz, some other folks. So we had a pretty cool turnout for that. Yeah, so I've been getting in my steps, my required, uh, <laughs> not because it's, uh, as I said, man, it's, it's hotter than heck. Here in, or as my old man used to say, hot in the hinges of hell. Here in LA now, <laughs> we had June Gloom, and now that blew over. And fortunately, our union has said, understanding that some of the members are <laughs> old folks like me. We only have to do three hours a day as opposed to four hours a day and falling out. But, you know, we get plenty of water to you know, keep us hydrated and everything. Anyway, so beginning in my steps doing that. So in between that, I was working on a novella, which I'm going to get back to. And in this novella, which is definitely more pulp, Definitely more sci-fi as distinct from, say, the crime fiction or the grounded crime fiction of One Shot Harry. I'm using a villain in this piece, and I think everybody here might be is too young to know about this villain. Does everybody know who Fritz Lang was? No? Really? Okay, all right. Fritz <laughs> Lang was the guy who directed Metropolis, that great old German film about, you know, workers on the underground and the rich people living on top. And he flees Germany during when the Nazis come to power, although his wife... <laughs> Turned out she was a Nazi. So she said, I'll see you, Fritz. I'm hanging in with Adolf. <laughs> anyway, but before that happens, he also directed a film called Dr. Mabusa the Gambler. It was actually from a novel from the 20s. And actually, I think maybe Fritz did two Dr. Mabusa films, and there's a couple other films from maybe the 60s. And Mabusa's is very interesting. He's really the archetype for a lot of the supervillains that we'll see come later in like Marvel and DC Comics. Okay. One of his great powers is that he can use telepathy to hypnotize. And so I'm now, because this character is in public domain and because this is kind of a new pulp novella, I'm using Dr. Mabusa as the villain in this story of mine. And our hero or heroine is a young woman named Jackie Alvarez, who started out in my mind as a kind of female Jack Reacher, but she's morphed from that. Okay. So anyway, all that to say is that's what I was working on, or I am working on. Very cool. 
And you actually brought up something I wanted to ask you about anyway, going into sort of the craft and business aspect of what we do. One thing I think that's really unique about you that you have a unique perspective on is, so you obviously work, you have an agent, you work with, you know, all the major big publishers, but you also still work very closely with small publishers as well, right? Exactly. That's right. In your mind, how are those kind of different, you know, in your interactions and, you know, just for our audience, what's, (laughs) what's that like? Right. Well, as people might not be surprised to know, well, one difference is you don't get it in advance <laughs> from the small press. <laughs> so turns, out, <laughs> turns out you got to make that money on the back end, but that's okay. You know what I mean? That's all right. That's right. And, and, but as long as you know that going in, you're not going to be surprised, right? You're not going to be shocked. Right, right. So that's one thing, right? That's definitely one thing. And as you said, you know, Phil, not only do I have an agent, I got an agent, I got a lawyer, and I got a manager. Sometimes they all get a cut. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there's that. So you get a nice sweet contract from one of the big publishers. Everybody got to get their beak wet. So there's that. So, and so, of course, in the great latitude with working with, a, you know, with Pro Se or uh, Airship 27 mm-hmm. or my buddy Joe Gentile at Moonstone is, it's just you and the publisher, right? And they respond and they, re- you know, even Joe, who sometimes disappears with radio silence. But they certainly respond. And I hinted at a, a project that, he, that Tommy and I are, are working on now which mm-hmm. I hope to see fruition next year. But so the good news is with small press publishers, you get a more immediate feedback, a, a yes or no, or maybe, or, you know, see where things go. And the idea that the thing you want to write or the idea you want to write, I mean, Decimator Smith can't be, I shouldn't say can't be, but at this moment, I don't think Decimator Smith could have existed anywhere except, or at least could have uh, been originated anywhere except in the pages of, Black Pulp. Now, does that mean I could take Decimator Smith and maybe try to do a graphic novel? Can I take Decimator Smith and maybe do a kind of treatment, a pitch, whatever it is, we finally get back to work here in Hollywood and make something happen as a limited series? Probably, maybe. But it would still take the idea that I would have to build up a bit of a portfolio of Decimator Smith stories that exist, at least in the prose form and have existed now in the world, and then to Mm -hmm. be able to build on that. So, I mean, really, to me, and again, because of the leeway and the latitude you get with the small presses in terms of realizing the stuff you want to do, I just think it's it's just marvelous, you know? I mean, there are, listen, there are constraints. There's everywhere there are constraints, sure. But let's face it, we also know in the world of new pulp, there's a lot more breadth of material that you can put out there than sometimes you can put out in the so-called mainstream presses. Sure. And I know, like, you do a lot of sort of your bigger mainstream work is more that very crime fiction, historical fiction. That's right. And then it sort of seems like you get a chance to go play and do the more pulpy stuff and maybe some of the sci-fi and things you like to do on that other side of it, right? That's right. That's right. The one sort of um, interesting example of something that kind of straddled the line was a couple of years ago when I did the uh, Matthew Henson and the Ice Temple of Harlem novel, mm-hmm. which is very much taking a real character and now I've retro, what's, it, what's the term? Retrocon and retro, retrofitted them in a kind of pulp mold, in an obvious pulp mold, Indiana Jones and Doc Savage, but set them mm-hmm. within the real setting of the Harlem Renaissance. But I was able to do that and also do it with a, again, it's a small press, but it's a press that's a little bit larger than, say, the new pulp presses. Mm-hmm. Agora Books was able, you know, because they are distributed through normal channels, and they gave me an advance. It wasn't much of an advance, but it was a lovely little advance, and they really promoted the book, and that really got me some press and some attention. 
Yeah. So I was going to ask you along those same lines, because obviously you worked in comics too. So you've worked with like DC. I'm not sure who else, but how does that differ from, you know, working with fiction publishers, if you will? I know that's the right term, but. Yeah. With prose publishers, I think it's the same in this regard. It is about establishing relationships with editors, right? Whether the editor mm-hmm. is at the comics press or the editor is at the prose press. But it's also the case, obviously, now in these days, there's a lot of agents. My agent, in fact, deals with uh, Greg Rucka, who's, who's a big time comics writer as well now, has had, was it The Old Guard? The Old Guard was on Netflix, and I think The Old Guard 2 was coming. And so he's certainly crossed over into streaming and, and cable work as well. And so it is the case that there are agents now who specialize have some clients that specialize, as I do, in either prose and comics. Some would just specialize in comics, and they represent that talent to the various publishers. But again, usually the gigs that I've gotten in comics have been because I've somehow met an editor or an editor has reached out to me or that kind of thing, as opposed to something that's come through, like just think from, say, some of the prose work, which has come through my agent. But comics work generally tends to come because of somebody I've met or I'm, you know, I'm down at Comic-Con in San Diego and you meet this person or that person or you're on that panel, whatever, and you get to talking mm-hmm. afterward or you're in the bar afterward. And so it's definitely in that regard, it's very much like, and even to some extent, like the pro stuff that I do is very much about creating these relationships with editors. Yeah, man, I'll tell you, I, uh, I about had a heart attack when I was in Barnes and Noble and I picked up that, uh, Batman, the killing joke. And I saw your name on it. <laughs> Yeah. Well, see, and again, that became one of those things where the gig came through uh, Krista Faust, my uh, co-writer on that, because she's Mm -hmm. had a relationship with uh, the folks at, well, Hard Case Crime, and that gets us to Titan Books. And she's the one that brought me in on that. We had done a project together called Peepland, which was a graphic novel, or excuse me, a limited series, which became a graphic novel set in the bad old days of Times Square in the 80s in New York. And then when Titan approached Krista about a novelization of The Killing Joke, she thought that, given my comics background, that I would be helpful in helping to, uh, to flesh that out. So again, it's obviously it's my relationship with my colleague, Krista, but it's also because then the editors have said, all right, well, you know, we know something of his work, so therefore, that's fine. We can, we can work with you guys. That's cool. I mean, all I'm saying is it's not every day you're at the bookstore and you're like, oh, this is a pretty cover on this Batman book. And then you're like, wait, is that my friend? Did my friend, did my friend write this Batman book? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I love so that cover. Cool. It's, a, it's a nice little cover, right? It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was cool. Yeah, no, it's a beautiful cover. Yeah, I was very happy with the results, even though at one point we got these insane, because, you know, of course, we, we developed a, a fairly detailed outline and at some point, man, well, again, this is just the, well, this is the nature of the business. We got these notes back from somebody, you know, at DC, but it wasn't, you could tell it wasn't from the comic side because they, the notes clearly had this sort of um, surface understanding of who Batman was in his world. But, <laughs> okay. But it, but it wasn't, you know what I mean? But it wasn't like, you know, somebody who had edited a Batman title, right? Or Batman run. And we would send back our notes. And then finally, I guess somebody at corporate figured out, oh, we should probably show this to one of the editors, right, on the comic side so we can be clear <laughs> about what it is we're talking about. So, you know, it all it all kind of worked out. You should probably get a Batman expert involved. 
Yeah, yeah. I'm not giving anything away. Where at one point somebody had written something about, well, what if the Joker attacked Alfred? And we pointed out, well, the Joker doesn't hold, you know, Batman as Bruce Wayne. Why would they? Why would they attack Alfred? <laughs> anyway, things like that. It all worked out. Well, I definitely want to ask you also, I wanted you to talk a little bit about being the lead editor on anthologies. And that was the one project I got to do with you, right? So the way I already mentioned that it was in your yeah. uh, Hollis for Hire anthology. Um, I got to work That's work right. in that world and play in your sandbox a little bit. But what's, what's that world like being the person running the show? It was a good run. And it's funny, I, I kind of, I guess, fell into this business or this subset of my uh, my work putting together anthologies. I suppose it's just the idea that, you know, certain ideas intrigued me. And therefore, I thought, well, if you create that, you know, thematic kind of connection, what would it be like if you brought in different writers, you know, to have a swing at that? And like you said, you know, we had Hollis for Hire. I had also done uh, Hollis P.I. And Nate Hollis was interesting because Nate Hollis actually started in comics. He started back in the days of Vertigo. I guess there's a Vertigo now, but back in the old days of the original Vertigo at DC Comics. It was a um, limited series called uh, Angel Town, and that's how I created the sort of younger, newer detective than my other detective, Ivan Monk. And for very strange and weird reasons, I retained all the rights to Angel Town, which is odd, right? Because, you know, DC is owned by Warners, and the usual deal is it's a 50-50 split. But for other reasons that are a bit more arcane, other legal reasons a bit more arcane, I retained all the rights to Angel Town, including the artwork. And so subsequently, I've reprinted Angel Town for the Moonstone. But because then I had all the rights to Nate Hollis, I thought, well, I want to move him from the world of comics to the world of prose. And that's how Tommy and I got to talking, you know, over at Pro Se. And that's what was the result. Somewhere down the line, I intend to do a Nate Hollis novella. But that's, you know, again, one of those projects that I'll get to. But really... I think doing anthologies has been a real, I've sort of taken a hiatus from them now, but really over that period of time of doing various anthologies or co-editing various anthologies, I just enjoyed it so much in the idea of bringing these stories together and, uh, and really being able to read uh, different writers' takes on a theme or a subject matter and seeing you know what they came up with, I just always thought it was a kind of a charge. But it is, you know, it's labor intensive, right? Sure. Some writers... You know, you work with more in depth than others. And so it's always about, you know, in the end, obviously trying to get that one package put together. And hopefully that even though the stories range, right, of course, in theme and structure, that somehow they still kind of hold together as a whole, if only because they're grouped around this, you know, a particular idea or notion. Sure. I was curious, you know, how difficult is it to move a character from comics to something that doesn't have the visual side to back it up. Right. That's a good question, Chris, I think, because then obviously you're, hopefully you're bringing a, a bit of that audience over from comics, but obviously you're also introducing this character into a world of prose and crime fiction. And so you have to be much more cognizant, right, of descriptions and details and giving a bit of a thumbnail as to what does Nate Hollis look like? How does he move? That kind of thing what parts of the city he moves through, what do those look like? Some things that would be, say, something you would have in a script for the artist, right? Because you're describing the visual, you now have to figure out in your head, I'm describing a visual for the reader, but I have to make it come alive as much as I can. I have to make it a bit more organic and a bit more uh, interesting to read 
and of course, cognizant of <laughs> Elmore Leonard's ten rules for writing that we'll, we'll get to at some point. That's right. Not go, not go overboard with the description. <laughs> Uh, cool. So there was one other thing I wanted to ask you about from a craft standpoint. I actually was trying to do some yeah. homework today before we got started. I saw you did a little chat with Walter Mosley. The one thing that perked my ears up is you guys were both talking about how you use too many characters in your novels, which is a problem I yeah. have. And Walter had made the yeah. comment that to him, like, that's real life, though, right? In real life, you run into a lot of people. So right. it feels more real to use more characters. So I was going to get your take on how do you manage that when you feel like the deck's getting too full? Oh, man, that's good because it goes right back to now the edits I've been doing on the second one shot hire, the Ash Darkest Night book. And again, as I said, this is like the second go round I'm now going over with my editor. And somewhere between that first version or at least the version I turned in and then getting her notes on that version, that very point came up. Do we really need this character? Can't we just, you know, subsume this? Can we not, you know, combine this with some other character and, and kind of move these things along? And of course, now as you stand back after a few months of having written it, and now mm -hmm. you read it again, you go, oh, of course. <laughs> You're absolutely correct. And so, yeah, the idea that some of these characters just have to die, man. Some of these characters <laughs> just have to go by the wayside. You know, they just do. I mean, listen, it's, it's a mystery novel. So, yes, we want to have these red herrings. We want to have these sort of false trails. But in the end, we got to sort of bring all this stuff together. And so it is that balance, right? We want to kind of keep folks in the dark. We want to kind of keep the suspense going. But you can't do it at the expense of having just so much. You've got all the real estate in the world that you need to tell the story. That's true. That's the great thing about a book, right? Uh, or an extended short story. But having said that, you're also cognizant of, man, I've got to keep the reader involved. I've got to keep them turning that page. So what do I do to do that? Mm -hmm. So it is certainly the case that I understand now my method. That is to say, I know that I'm going to put more characters in play initially or even in the second or third draft that turned into the publisher. And I also understand at some point, some of those have to be sacrificed. They just have to be because there's pacing, there's all the things you have to think about when you're writing you know, a book that you just have to take into account. As opposed to, I mean, certainly, as we know, one of the great, wonderful disciplines of the short story is you have no choice but to have a minimum amount of characters because it's a short story. you got to just get in and get out. Right. You don't have the luxury of having all this territory and all this landscape and all this backstory to deal with, which can be fine and rich and fulfilling, but there is something to be said for taking some of that discipline from the short story and applying it to the novel. This last year, I finished a 270,000-word epic fantasy. Holy moly. Yeah, I was maybe, I don't know, 20,000 words in or something. I had this scene come up, and I was like, I'm going to need a new character right here, so I'm just going to go ahead and create them. Right. And I ended up, throughout the course of these like two or three scenes that happened together fairly early on, I just made yes. these three throwaway characters that I didn't think I was going to do anything with, right? And then right. they ended up becoming integral to the story. And I absolutely adore. It's really funny because the book I wrote is a tribute to my dad. So like he's the main character. Yeah. His, his buddies are kind of the main yeah. characters. But then there's these like four completely made up characters who become central, almost, you know, sub main characters that go right. along with them. And that was fine. Like I could work through that because I got them early enough and it wasn't a big deal. Right. I could give them their own personalities yeah. Yeah. And, and all of that. The problem I ran into, though, right. with 270,000 words was there were so many side <laughs> characters 
But now at the end, as I'm going into the third draft, I'm like, I, you know, I just finished the second draft and I'm like, what the hell? This character yeah. popped in and out and was important for the first 40,000 words and then never mentioned again. So now I got to figure out right. where am I going to murder him at? <laughs> you know, or... Right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. Or can some of this be shuffled into something else, into some other character? Yeah. That's right. That's right. And that was, I mean, honestly, I think that would be my go to, right? If I were put on center stage, it's like, how do I manage lots of characters? Well, one of the first things I'm going to do is, can I merge some of these? Can some of these become? Yes. Become. And, and if I have some later that I have to add, then right. is there some from the deck I can murder before I add the new ones just to keep the right. herd thin enough, you know? There you go. That's it. So one more for you, and then we'll go do the news. Just your general advice for the new author getting started today, trying to find their place in the world. What would you advise them? It can be craft or business. Well, craft-wise, I'd say, in the end, look, man, you got to write the story you want to write because it's got to keep you entertained. It's got to keep you involved, whether it is 270,000 words or it's a short story, five or 6,000 words. And not to sweat, although this is going to be counterintuitive, not to sweat the marketplace, right? Yeah. You got to think about the marketplace at some point. Yes, I understand that. I'm Listen, I'm a commercial writer. I get it. I understand that. I, I worked in TV and I get a whole bunch of notes from people you think, what the hell are they talking about? But when you're writing for yourself, particularly, you know, you're writing in prose and you're writing long form, short form, middle form, whatever it is, comics, write the story you want to write and don't sweat all this other stuff. Just make that man, polish that story, hone that story, make that story yours. And whether it gets sold or not, whether it gets you any attention or not, it's the thing you will build on craft-wise and psychologically. So it has those great benefits. Love it. Love it. All right. Well, we will do the news. All right. For our news, we're going to start with the writer's strike. And uh, it's still happening. Same news story. I don't have anything yes. else to add. But fortunately, I brought on <laughs> Gary today, who so he might have a few more things to add for us. <laughs> well, well, as previously mentioned, <laughs> not to stitch you up in such a way. <laughs> right, exactly. I've been uh, among my activities picketing, but just today we actually had a little rally at Amazon Studios. I think our sign said Amazon Crime. Where I loved it. it; had the little scoop thing on it there, <laughs> uh, rhyming with Amazon Prime. I think the big news is that while the producers have essentially walked away from negotiating with the writers, they are, in fact, negotiating with uh, SAG-AFTRA, which are the actors. The feeling seems to be that they are a bit worried to the actors, because, by the way, tonight was the strike deadline, though I think that now has been extended. I was listening to the news a little earlier before we went on. And the federal negotiators involved, although the federal negotiator has been there, but the federal negotiator has been involved. So that, I shouldn't say automatically, but that is, in fact, a, an extension now of the talks. And so that's happening. It is the fact that the writers and the actors, listen, in the end, though, the actors union is going to make the deal they have to make for their membership, which is not our membership, right? Although there's obviously some crossover between actors and writers. But that is to say, the two big sticking points are still the two big sticking points. One is somehow 
or another curtailing because you're not going to AI is that genie is out the uh, proverbial uh, virtual bottle and it ain't going back in. So it's either somehow right. curtailing or coming to some agreement about AI, right? As it affects actors and as it affects writers. I'm going to tell a story, but I'll tell that story a little later. But then also the notion of on the back end, what writers and actors are getting for residuals in the age of streaming when the streaming services are not transparent about their numbers. And so part of the discussion mm-hmm. has been, yes, there's a kind of flat rate you get. And I've gotten those checks that I get for something that I've written or co-written showing up streaming. But the idea being that they know Netflix, Amazon, Apple, they know how many eyes are on that given show because mm-hmm. they know how many uh, devices plug on, right, or, or come on, come online. And so they do have a count. They know that some things are mm-hmm. getting more eyes and other eyes. So the notion is, if you are, in fact, getting more hits, then, in fact, we should have our back end should be commensurate with that. There should be obviously a kind of floor uh, for what you get for just streaming in general. But then if, in fact, more eyes are on episode A, B, or C, then therefore the people involved with episode A, B, or C should see something more in terms of percentage on the tail end. So all that to say is that those two matters, among other things, but those are two of the big constant bones of contention. And at this moment, there seems to be I don't know if there's movement, but there is the case that their negotiations are continuing between SAG, AFTRA, and the Producers Association. Gotcha. I did read this article from Deadline here where they seem to think that, you know, according to this article in Deadline, that there's rumor, I guess would be the right way to say it, or allegedly the studios are essentially just taking the position of we might just starve them out, right? Which is pretty cold if that's true, right? Yeah, it's pretty cool. I think it's a bit, this has come up. That was a point of discussion today, as well as there was earlier this morning, or early in the morning, there was a mm-hmm. email to us from one of our strike captains, a guy I know, in fact. And uh, there seems to be more hyperbole in that than, than actual reality, than truth. Yeah. And, and, truth. and the feeling among, at least my understanding from the WJ, the feeling is that this is a bit of saber rattling from the point of the producers and part of this is the, you know, is the usual kind of tactics when, when you're involved with the management of labor in the sense of management trying to sort of put the fear of God in the striking workers. But as I said, it is in fact the case though, that the producers are a bit concerned that should the actors go out on strike because part of the deal would be that the actors therefore cannot promote, you know, movies that are in the can, mm-hmm. right? Movies that are supposed to come out now, they can't promote and Let's not forget, next week is one of the big annual comic book conventions, Comic-Con, in San Diego. And, of course, now a lot of movies get premiered there and a lot of movies get talked about there. And if actors can't go down and be on that panel or be, you know, up there hawking the movie, that will affect the bottom line. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, wow, thank you. Anything else on that, Gary? Because I've been talking about it with no knowledge and total ignorance for weeks now. (laughs) Well... I'm not totally ignorant on it, but I'm certainly I'm not totally in the loop either, right? I mean, as we said, you yeah, know, sure. listen, the, what the actors are talking about is their business and it's their representatives and it's the people they voted for to represent them. And that's what's happening. But as I said, you know, what what we know is more or less what I've talked about or will be at least what we can 
conjecture, but it is the case that one of the things that we're very keen on, when I say we, I mean the WGA, is obviously then getting the producers back to the negotiating table with us. So that sure. that is certainly, you know, without equivocation, that's certainly one of the things that is driving our strike in the sense of we want to negotiate, but we want to obviously talk about fair terms and fair treatment. And we certainly don't want to negotiate through this or that press release or this or that article in the press. Gotcha. Very cool. Yeah. You might have to come back on when things shake up again and give us the uh, the update, yeah, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Well, so for our next thing, this is really funny to me. This came out the other day on Tor.com, and the headline is, I, two-time Hugo Award finalist Chuck Tingle, have taken over Tor.com. And he has a little... Uh, a little thing here where he scratched out tour.com and changed it to chucktingle.com. And there was several like Chuck Tingle, like articles on, on tour. I'm not sure what the story behind this is, but for anyone who doesn't know Chuck Tingle, I don't even know how to describe who or what Chuck Tingle is. He or she, whoever, whatever, whoever they are, the mysterious elusive person puts out these, uh, I don't I've never read any of the books, so I can't say ridiculous books, but the most ridiculous book titles anyone's ever heard of. And several years back, someone got them nominated for a Hugo and they have just ran with it ever since. Gary, have you heard of Chuck? No, I have not. OK, hold on. We're Googling. I got to read you some titles. Yeah, let me uh, let me get some Amazon.com up here. <laughs> that, that was the highlight of our day at work. Chuck Tingle. <laughs> One week, Bill was like, this is who Chuck Tingle is. And we all went, oh, my God. I don't know. Like, I, some go. of these titles, Chris might have right. to uh, cut out so that I don't get the explicit script on oh my, oh my our goodness, podcast. But... Great. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> Let's see if we can just get a list of titles here. Bisexual Mothman Mailman Makes a Special Delivery yes. in Our Butts by Chuck Tingle. Oh, my God. <laughs> Yes. By yes. bisexual <laughs> banana split boyfriend in my butt by Chuck Tingle. Oh my lord. <laughs> the, the Space Raptor butt trilogy uh-huh. from Hugo nominated author uh-huh. Chuck Tingle. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Chuck Tingle That's presents scary stories to tingle your butt. <laughs> yeah. Um I see a I see a theme. I see a theme in Chuck's work, by the way. I detected things. <laughs> so one of the articles that they put up um, says not pounded by the physical manifestation of Chuck Tingle's traditional publishing deal because he writes about more than just pounding. However, if this book was about pounding, that would be okay too because there's nothing wrong with sexuality in art. And that's actually the title oh of God. the book. Oh, that's great. <laughs> oh, wow. Hilarious. So yeah, I don't, I don't know what happened, but basically they did like a Chuck Tingle takes over tour.com. Right. And now let me ask something. Does, does Chuck uh, publish these himself, does he? No? I, you know, I'm not really sure. I don't know. Let's look. I've yeah. got it pulled up over yeah. here. Uh, let's, let's see. Let's see what the publisher is. I'm not seeing the publisher listed. It's a great bio, though. Chuck Tingle is a mysterious force of energy behind sunglasses and a pink mask. He is also an anonymous author of romance, horror, and fantasy. Chuck was born in the home of Truth, Utah, and now splits time between Billings, Montana, and Los Angeles, California. 
Chuck writes to prove huh. love is real because love is the most important tool we have when resisting the endless cosmic void. <laughs> Not everything people say about Chuck is true, but the important parts are. I, I don't see. Yeah, I don't see a publisher listed. So, does it say that he's eighteen feet tall? Out of curiosity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Gary Holy Phillips is moly. moonlighting as Chuck Tingle. It's Chuck Tingle. <laughs> I, 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 I was the guy that wouldn't have enough energy. Oh my god! But look That's at this. Wild. Look, these sales ranks aren't bad. One of the ones I found just says independently published. Okay, yeah, yeah. so yeah, he's self-publishing them. Look, see the print link, forty-eight pages. Yeah, yeah, they're not That's long. Cool. I don't think. And, but but the funny That's thing right. was, is, yeah, they, uh, right. they somebody got. But Raptor Space Invasion was nominated for a Hugo, so it was actually on the ballot. <laughs> they had to stand up there and read it and, and everything. <laughs> That's great. The first Worldcon we ever went to, they had to read that off, and it was like, wait, what did they just say? <laughs> exactly. That's perfect. <laughs> and you have to wonder if like, it started as an attempt at a serious science fiction title of like Space Raptor Butt Invasion. Right, right. Oh, wait, no. Sorry. <laughs> Yeah. Space Invasion. Yeah, Butt Raptor Space Invasion. Butt Raptor Space Invasion. Yeah. yeah. That's right. That's great. Butt Raptor Space Invasion. That's great. Man, That's I don't perfect. know, but it's it's know, funny. Raptors that can twerk. Right. Right. <laughs> I think he's got like 50 of these or 100 or something. Right. Like, it's ridiculous. Right. There's right. so many. That's crazy, man. That's crazy. That's crazy. <laughs> All right. Our next thing, and this is something I didn't know about. And I probably should have. So I guess it's good that I'm doing the show to solve my own problem of not knowing what's going on in the industry. But the Nebula Awards. OK, so for anybody who doesn't know, the Nebula Awards are they'll have a convention where they do the award show and stuff. You go to it in person. That was historically how it was always done. But I guess during COVID or around that time, they started doing like an online thing and they've continued it where like you can sign up to be part of the Nebula conference like year round, I guess. And they have like online meetups and online panels and things that you can join. And then, of course, they're doing the actual Nebula award ceremony and everything that people can still go to. But I didn't know about the online part. I think that's kind of cool. All right. And then my next one I thought also was kind of cool. The Library of America is putting on a panel called The Enduring Genius of Ray Bradbury. And that's going to be on the 19th at 3 o'clock PDT. So I guess this is just going to be like a panel for an hour talking about Ray Bradbury, but it sounded kind of cool. I thought about signing up to check that out. And then my next one is from Writer Beware, which we talked about Writer Beware for the first time last week. And I thought it made sense that we should probably check in with them occasionally and see what kind of scams are going on and then talk about them on the show. And this week they put out an article about scammers basically pretending to be affiliated with Amazon and trying to target authors that way. And what was really interesting is in their example, if you Google Amazon Kindle Publishing, they pointed out that there are like four things that come up as sponsored links, meaning like hmm. these people are paying for Google to put them at the top. And I guess all allegedly potentially are scammers, right? Or at least a vanity press, I would assume. But that's worth checking out on Writer Beware to see what, you know, especially for the self-published crowd, what kind of scams are out there? What are people trying to do? Because they're, you know, at last week, Gary, I don't know if you heard about this, but Victoria Strauss, who is like, you know, one of the co-founders of Writer Beware, last week yeah. she shared on Twitter 
a scammer had sent an email out to a bunch of people as her and even like talked about writers beware in it and then asked people for their phone numbers and emails and things. Oh, that's terrible. Oh, man. It's wild, isn't it? (laughs) Wild. It is wild. It is wild. Oh, my goodness. In this article, they actually included a list of like potentially nefarious ones of people pretending that they're associated with Amazon. I'm looking at a list of probably 50, you know, Amazon publication house, Amazon published partner, Amazon publishers online, and none of that's real, right? So, but it all sounds legit. Yeah, it all sounds legit. And Amazon was in the publishing game at one point. I don't know if they're even still doing any of that. They are. Are they? Thomas Mercer is one of the imprints. Okay, yeah, so I was going to say, none of the names are like Amazon, right? They actually have right. like legitimate no. publishing imprint names. Yeah, though they have some kind of name, yeah. In fact, I know a couple of people published by Thomas Mercer. Gotcha. I was trying to remember, they had a, sci- a sci-fi one for a while. I can't remember what it was called. That's right. 47 North or something like that? I think that's right. Uh, that yeah. sounds right. It may still exist, but I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, so like if, if you're looking at something, you know, if it's Amazon, if it's actually a publishing house owned by Amazon... It's going to have an imprint name. It's not going to be called like Amazon. So right. exactly. be careful, people. Scammers are out there. Yes, they are. All right. And then still for the self-publishing crowd, Ingram Spark has updated their shipping. I'll be honest. I don't know what their shipping was like before, but if you publish through Ingram Spark, you'll want to know that they've updated how their, their shipping costs and how their shipping works and things. So be aware of that. All right. And then my next one is Amazon apparently is beta testing a new library system for audiobooks and ebooks. And basically, this means like your library for what you've purchased, what you own. They're doing like a new platform where you would get better recommendations and that sort of a thing. I don't know what it looks like because it is a closed beta that you can only get into by invitation. But I guess we'll hear more in the days to come. All right, the next on the news front is Wattpad has made some changes to its creator program. Essentially, I guess the way I understand it, I've not actually used Wattpad, so I don't really know. But according to the article from TechCrunch, they are aiming to make their program more accessible for writers. And I guess they were using some kind of a tier system in the platform, but they've done away with the tier system. And they say they're doing that so that writers can focus on writing rather than tiers and rather than trying to get into certain tiers, I guess. Mm. I don't know. Like I said, I've not used it, but if you use Wattpad, you probably want to be aware of that change. All right. And then one quick one as well. Harlequin has added a new imprint called Afterglow Books. And apparently this has something to do with the popularity of TikTok's hashtag spicy talk. (laughs) I don't know what that is. I don't know what that means. Is Chuck Tingle an editor there? Afterglow? <laughs> <laughs> Might be. Might be. <laughs> yeah, I guess if the first one comes out and it has anything to do with pounding or butt invasions, we'll know. Well, no, that's right. <laughs> but I guess this new imprint's going to start putting out two titles a month in January. Huh. There you go. Spicy, huh? All right. All right. Yeah, spicy. That spicy talk. <laughs> another real quick one so usa today has their own bestseller list or rather they had it went on hiatus for Mm. a while um Mm. but it's back now so usa today is bringing back their bestseller list which is i guess it's cool if you track that sort of thing i mean i would be cool if i were on it there you go (laughs) 
I got to get my agent on that. I got to get on that. (laughs) One last quick update. JH, thank you for helping me remember because I've tried to forget it a couple of times. <laughs> if you're interested in, in, in knowing, the Hugo finalists have been announced. So go check that out. You can see if any of your favorite authors or maybe yourself has made it as a finalist. All right. And before Chris gives us his official AI updates for the week, you might remember a few episodes back, I mentioned that Gary had actually written a very creepy sort of view of what AI could be. Gary, that's not what you really think is going to happen, is it? Yes, I absolutely believe that to be the case. <laughs> I really do, man. I know. I think it's all over, man. Come on. I just learned that Cat GBD yeah. it just bought itself Persian. And they, and they can't even figure yeah. out, well, how the hell did it do that, right? Why did it do that? Come on, man. This The signs are all over. This is it. <laughs> this is all over, man. I, wait, I'm going to tell you the story. Okay. Here's the lead-in for Chris's piece. There was an actor named Edward Harriman. He's been dead now almost a decade. Now you can go back there. You'll see he was in uh, he was in the Lost Boys in several different productions. He often played FDR, uh, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, because he kind of looked like Roosevelt. They put the glass on him, this and that. Some years before he dies, he somebody in his camp, I guess, knew the handwriting of the wall, and he sold his voice to one of these companies, a startup company. At that point, okay. right? This is a decade okay. ago. Okay. And since he's been dead, he has narrated 100 books <laughs> because the AI <laughs> has been able to duplicate his voice, but of course, also capture his nuance, his pauses, his highs, wow. his lows, all the things that you bring to uh-huh. the narration, right, of a novel and has done it successfully. And if you Google his name, I think the article will come up and they play you know, there's two things there and you can click on him reading this excerpt from a particular book and then the AI, but of course they don't tell you which is which. And as far as I could tell, they both sounded, you know, pretty good to me. So yeah, man, I, I think the thing that's up on the Stansbury forum, the story conference, oh no, I think that's coming, babe. <laughs> I think it's going to start communicating with the driverless cars and they're going to start communicating with your refrigerator. It's all over, baby. <laughs> It's all over. Oh, you should have been on here a couple weeks ago. We were talking about how they were feeding the AI, like, I don't know, like some erotica stuff or whatever. We were talking about sky fish nets. Yes. Oh, that's great. Oh, that's great. That's perfect. That's perfect. All right. So we'll put a link to Gary's article or Gary's story, rather, into the show notes. And you guys definitely should read it. It's really, really good and creepy. I like it. (laughs) All right, Chris, what do we got on the AI front? In our continuing coverage of our robot overlords. Uh, It looks like this week, the answer to Phil's question from episode like one, maybe two, about how to tell when you're reading something written by an AI. Apparently, CNN has not only caught on to how to do that, but they're listing a plethora of options. The most telling example that they use talks about dates ending in like 2022 when it stopped being fed data. I suspect it's along the lines of some mm. of the earlier mm. issues they found where it knew Elon Musk owned Twitter, but that happened after it stopped being fed data. So if you asked it who owned Twitter on the day it stopped being fed data, it would tell you whoever the previous owner was. Interesting. But if you asked it who was the CEO of Twitter, it would tell you it was Elon. But it does say that AI is frequently making grammatical <laughs> errors. Well, now I think they were saying that it's gotten better at that, where it's not making as many now, <laughs> so it's harder 
but like you should look for generic and or repetitive writing at this point because it's getting less and mm -hmm. less grammatical errors but factual errors as well because like some of your favorite idiots it will absolutely tell you with great confidence the very wrong answer that it thinks is right were you referencing me there i was not <laughs> Oh, okay. I was thinking repetitive in my head. I was remembering the episode where I said 100% like 30 times. I don't think I've said it this episode, have I? I've been trying real hard not to. Other than just now, which I'm going to clip in over and over. <laughs> yeah, you would. You would do that to me. I would. All right. What else we got on the AI front, mm -hmm. Chris? Voice actors, specifically in this case, Skyrim's voice actors are really irritated mm -hmm. or at least they're making sounds that could be mistaken for irritated <laughs> but against their will they are being used to train an ai to make deep fakes of their voice which is then being used for pornographic right. content without any consent from the affected parties if you will <laughs> so skyrim with its major modding community which is part of the reason the game is still popular so many years later with like eight or 10 re-releases. Yeah, there are lots of them being put out. And I think there's a petition going to get them taken down because the voice actors are just not OK with how they're being portrayed. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of messed up to use somebody else's voice for it. Like, really, it's kind of messed up to use somebody else's voice for anything if you don't have the rights to it, but specifically to use their voice to make uh, exactly, pornographic exactly. mods for a video game. Oh that my seems God. Did we check if Chuck Tingle was the author of any of the models? <laughs> uh, <Yeah. laughs> well, <laughs> I think it's all over. I really. Maybe you're right, oh Gary. Because, you know, <laughs> it's, it's not, all over. You got to go away, right? <laughs> can't put it back. It's here. You can't. So the one thing that we have talked about on here quite a bit is there have been a number of publishers and things who have made it very clear from like a writing standpoint. Right. We're not going to publish anything that's been touched by AI. So there is some pushback that way. We also mentioned last week the Authors Guild pinned a petition to all the major tech companies working on AI and everything. The thing is, it's just going to be disruptive and we'll see how things change as a result. Right. But I'm not going to stop writing books. No. No, listen, real writers are going to write, but let's face it, though, that, uh, you know, the people that want to use it and will use part of it or some of it along with their own writing, it's going to be hard to weed out. It's going to be hard to detect. Yeah. And at some point, there will have to be some kind of parameters put around it, right? Because it is going to be, I can't imagine that it's not going to be, become somewhat commonplace in a way, right? Exactly. In the same way that we evolve from just telling stories to having a pencil to write them down with to having a typewriter to having a computer right in a way it's the same kind of jump right like if you think about the typewriter to the computer right so right back in those old days you would have to retype every draft of your manuscript exactly. individually whereas when right. the computer came on board it was just like i got to change a few words and that's the next draft right there was actually now being an old guy there was a step in between, which was the beauty of the Selectric, which is that little ball, and then you would hit it, and it could go back and erase the mistake, and then you could retype it. So for a hot minute, <laughs> that was the cat's pajamas. But certainly it is the case that between the typewriter and the computer was a big step. Absolutely. 
Boy, Gary, I don't know. I think our young audience either just fell asleep on you or they think you're telling lies. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Ah, Grandpa's going off again. He's just talking about all that stuff. That's crazy. It's crazy. <laughs> all right, folks. Well, that'll be our news portion for today. All right, for our tool segment this time, Gary wanted to talk about Elmore Leonard's 10 rules for writing. So we're just kind of going to go through these and yeah, get some opinions from both Gary and anyone else who wants to chime in. The first rule on the list is never open a book with weather. Anyone have any comments on that? Unless you want to. <laughs> Unless you want to. <laughs> we're going to break rule one right up again. <laughs> We're going to break rule one right off the top. But generally speaking, yeah, it's probably true. Yeah. You know, it was a dark and stormy Mm -hmm. night. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah, my first thought was Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time, which always has that kind of similar opening, um, focusing on like the wind and like where it's going and who the people are and what the weather's doing. Mm. Yeah. See? Perfect example, right? There you go. I always kind of wondered on this one, which first of all, I just want to shout out. I found these rules very early on and... As Gary has already alluded to, like you can break these rules, but if you're a new writer, you could do worse than to take these 10 rules as religion. There you go. To this first one, I often wondered about this one. I don't know if he necessarily specifically meant never open a book with weather so much as I read this as that was sort of a sarcastic way to say, don't open with something boring. (laughs) Don't open with description, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. Like if you're a new writer. Sometimes you have a tendency to just do a brain dump right out the gate, but start with story, start with something happening. That's how rule one reads to me, right? It's not actually don't, don't open with weather. Right. No, I like that take, Phil. It's like conversation. That's right. You want to have an interesting conversation, not just talk about the weather. Yeah, exactly, Chris. Yep. Right. All right. Next on the list is avoid prologues. Mm-hmm. This one to me is sort of the same thing, to be honest with you. That's sort of how it translates to me. I've read books with really right. good prologues, and I don't know that he's necessarily taking a dig at prologues, so to say. But again, I think it's more about that brain dump. So you might have a book that starts like my very first novel. Mm. I started the first chapter, which you could argue maybe would be a prologue. I started the first chapter from a different character, not my main character's perspective, like a throwaway character. And that was my way to introduce the main character and see them from a different set of eyes before you got to live in their head. And you see this sort of, I think about like the first Blade movie, if anybody's ever seen that. It opens and you're following this dumb idiot character into this butcher shop, right? This girl's dragging this idiot character along. And, you know, she takes him into this nightclub and all of a sudden there's blood raining from the ceiling. and he realizes he's surrounded by vampires and they're all about to kill him and he's crawling through the blood. And then all of a sudden the crowd parts and he's standing in front of this pair of black boots and he looks Mm. up and blade standing there and blade proceeds to just start hacking down vampires. So to me, that's sort of the same thing. Just visually, you see that in the movie where you start from a different character's perspective and you can see a, see things differently. I think it gives a nice, uh, a nice twist, a nice way to introduce a character. So I don't really, agree with the avoid prologues, but I think it's just avoid that brain dump. That's how it reads to me. 
All right, the third one on the list, never use a verb other than said to carry dialogue. I break this rule, but I do it somewhat judiciously. So I often, we were talking about this earlier, you know, as I'm now doing the tightening and the rewriting and such on the uh, new novel, I am cognizant of when I use said, and I'm also cognizant of when I will then, you know, just have the character say he replied or he answered. And I'll do that now and then. Mm. To me, it helps to break up the rhythm. I find it a little static if I just have characters, he said, she said kind of thing. Uh, so I do like to break right. that up. Having said that, I try not to overdo it. I pretty much do the same thing where replied and answered will come in. Another sometimes, depending on the scene, I might use like whispered because mm. that's way better than saying, you know, he said softly. Like yeah. we have a verb yeah. for that. I can use it. Right. That's right. Oh, I was thinking, you know, muttered or mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the yeah. kind of crap that I would come up with just to be a dick. i'm glad you said that chris actually because the reason that he has this rule in here is because the word said is used so commonly that your eyes glaze over it without stopping and pausing on it right that's right so it almost works like a comma it almost works like a comma as you use it and that's why he's very strongly suggesting to use said because it keeps you in that space that's right i find i use the other words and then as I'm editing, I end up chopping more of them mm. back to said or mm-hmm. asked. I use asked a lot, you know, mm-hmm. but I'm with you, Gary and, and JH. I try to mostly use said and it's almost that kind of kill your darlings thing where it's like, oh, no, I think this other one's better here. So every once in a while, I'll let one slide through. But yeah. by and large, in the editing process, I'm changing a lot of those to said. Yeah, that's actually a good point. It's funny. I realized that I was doing that today that I. I was like, ah, it should just be said. <laughs> I got to move it along. So as an editor, people can hire me through Fiverr and I'll come across authors who will use other words sometimes and like, I'll change them and I'll explain you know, like why I changed them. But then like, mm-hmm. they'll send me like the next book and they're like, they're still doing it. It's like, okay, I already told you in book right. one, you clearly didn't listen. So I guess I'm not going to repeat it, but like, I'll get some, Instead of like said, it'd be like she sighed. And it's like, have you ever tried uh-huh. sighing yeah. and speaking at the same time? Like, it's not really a thing. But like, then I'll, I'll see that in like traditionally published books as well. And so I'm like, oh, okay, if that's what you want to go with. That's what you want. Yeah. 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 <laughs> hey, have you got to be? Oh, so. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that or, or she laughed or, yeah. Well, Phil does that one. <laughs> yeah, well, okay, so uh, so, so one final point on this one. Um, I guess actually two points since you made fun of me just now, Chris. So <laughs> a couple of things that I do. One thing that I do is I try to use said the most, right? As I mentioned, in a first draft, I might use other words. And then in a second draft, I'm changing most of those to said. And you might be wondering to yourself, like, well, what if I'm looking at my page and I'm seeing said, 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 said. Well, now I'm going to look at it again and go, okay, do I need dialogue attribution in all of these lines? And if it's two people talking, I probably don't, right? right. So I can get rid of some saids altogether. Yeah, that's right. Right. It's absolutely true. The more you can slide and not worry about attribution because, in fact, the dialogue is the two people and one person sounds like this, the other person sounds like that. Yes, absolutely. Right. 
Yeah, usually when you've got the two people, after those first couple times of the attributions, like the reader yeah. can tell it's a back and forth and they know who's exactly. talking at that point. Exactly. That's right. Exactly right. And then my second point on that, because Chris made fun of me, which is really good. So one of the things I do when I get to usually my third draft is I maintain a list of things like the example he gave laughed, right? Mm-hmm. The person laughed. They whatever, right? So what I'll do is I'll keep a list and laugh will be one of those words on the list. And then out beside it, I'll have chuckled, giggled, whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. And I will go search my whole document for how many times I've used the word laughed. You know, it'll be like a hundred or something. Right. And mm-hmm. I'll check the other ones and I've only used them not at all or a couple of times. And so I will specifically go hunt those words and see where I could change out my words a little bit. Right. Very good. I was actually meaning I have a lot of recording of you laughing and talking at the same time. It it wasn't a writing thing. I don't do that. Right. Right now. Uh (laughs) Well, anyways, let me make a good point. That's a good idea for people. If you have like laughed as one smiled is another, Mm -hmm. right? So smiled, you could replace with grinned or whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. I like shrug. I always write shrug in. So I'll search that word and see what I can swap out. Yeah. One thing I'll notice, I guess the the smiled one reminded me is like people will use that as an attribution instead of said. So like, you know, good morning. She smiled (laughs) or like, right, 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 right. It's it's just weird to me. I'm (laughs) laughing not to make fun of people, but because I know I've done it. That's right. That's right. All right. The next one is actually directly related to number three. So it's never use an adverb to modify the verb said he admonished gravely. (laughs) Uh, I'm a believer in this one as well. I try not to do this. I try not to do it. Yeah, but I will do it. And I knowingly do it. I said, well, let's see what the editor, let's Mm -hmm. see if the editor will let me sneak that through. Let's see. Let's just see. Oh, that's funny. But yeah, it's a big one. Like, try to kill those. You yeah. should kill those. Yeah. Yep. yep. Right. Said softly. Like, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, just use whispered. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Just use whispered. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, okay, but I want to see how you write a story with me and try and use whispered because nobody's going to believe it if they've met me. <laughs> <laughs> I actually had that in my last Music the Gathering novel. I had, um, it was, the band members are all real people. It's their stage characters who are the main characters. And we had a side character who's also a real character. And at one point he was whispering with other people and they actually said like, um, he can't whisper. And so like I had to change it a bit to where it's like he was trying to whisper, but his voice was carrying and like his bandmates were like annoyed because of that. So, That's yeah. great. That's good. That's oh, good. I'll have to read it to see how you did it. Yeah. <laughs> you just say you know what my grandson always says indoor voice grandpa indoor voice mm-hmm. yep has <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> your grandson met you gary yes yes that's why he says that <laughs> all right number five on the list Keep your exclamation points under control. You are allowed no more than two or three per 100,000 words of prose. I'm going to jump in because I'm actually a big believer of this. But now having, you know, a toehold in New Pulp and New Pulp being somewhat (laughs) retro, 
I do find myself using them more when I'm writing that kind of story than certainly when I'm writing a crime fiction story or a straight crime fiction story. And in fact, there's examples I recall specifically where an editor put an exclamation point and I took it out. Nice. Yeah. So I think the budding author tends to overuse them is mm-hmm. the problem, right? Normally, like if I have a paragraph where somebody's yelling, I mean, for one, question if somebody's going to yell a whole paragraph. Sometimes they might. Mm-hmm. You can start that first sentence with one and maybe end with one and everything in between doesn't have mm-hmm. to be. But if you think about real life, people don't talk to each other in exclamation marks, right? Right. Like we're not just screaming at each other endlessly. So right. even in tense situations where people are arguing, they're usually yeah. certain lines, certain sentences, certain statements are going to be exclaimed, but most of them are going to be just spoken. And on the written page, right. it looks real goofy if you use too damn many. Yep. Yep. Right. Yeah, I mostly try to stick with them, if at all, in dialogue. And that's normally going to be, like you said, like it's a moment where either someone's shouting or it can be like a sort of gasp or like, oh, you know, like an exclamation in that regard. Mm-hmm. But like, especially not because um, I see it sometimes in just like narration, right? No one's speaking. It's like it definitely doesn't belong there. Right. Exactly. Yeah, it's got to be either dialogue or internal dialogue, or it doesn't it doesn't belong at all. Right. All right, number six on the list, never use the words suddenly or all hell broke loose. <laughs> I'll go first on this one. I've got no problem with it. This is on my list. I will intentionally remove every instance of suddenly from my books. Mm. You probably can't find a single instance of it unless it's in dialogue. And Brian Thomas Schmidt, who was on with us recently, was the one who pointed him, uh, either him or his partner in crime, Claire, one or the other, was the one who pointed it out to me. And it's because when you write the word suddenly, it's less sudden as a reader, right? Because now you're reading two words instead of one. Yeah. So if you're trying to make something sudden happen, just make it happen. Don't adverb it. That's good. Yeah, I agree. I will say on the all hell broke loose. I might have an internal dialogue or something that, you know, ends a chapter or that a character is internally saying is like, and then all hell broke loose mm-hmm. or, you know, and then, oh, crap, this is what's happening. Now. So right, right. That one I'm a little looser on, but suddenly I, I murder with intention. All right. Number seven on the list. Use regional dialect, patois sparingly. You know, that's, yeah. that's an interesting tightrope. So, you know, if you have a character who's from wherever, right? New Orleans or whatever you're doing. And Mm -hmm. you do want to give a flavor of that, but you're right. You have to somehow, there is some kind of balance and I'm not sure what it is all the time, but definitely you want to kind of, you want to give a flavor, right? You do want to give a flavor, but you don't want to go overboard because then it becomes like you're goofing on yourself Mm -hmm. and then the reader can't figure out, well, what the hell are you writing here? You know? So yeah, there's some kind of balance and I'm not, I'm not sure what the hell it is, but there's definitely Mm -hmm. some kind of, I mean, for instance, Listen, sometimes I just have, if a character is using a foreign language, I don't try to write the foreign language. I'll just say they spoke in German, they spoke in Spanish, whatever. You know what I mean? And we just kind of move on because I'm not trying to put that translation on the page. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right, Gary. It does get tricky. And I think if you don't know the dialect pretty Mm -hmm. well or the... The problem is, it's not just that you know the sounds, it's that you would know how it would be written. And if you don't, it's better to just not do it, right? That's right. That's right. That's exactly right. 
I can say, you know, he spoke with a peppy Irish accent yeah. and an image forms in your mind. It changes how you hear that dialogue in your brain. Yes. I don't have mm. to try to sound all that exactly. out for you on the page. Exactly. Right. Exactly. One example that comes into my head is the only time I've ever really liked it, I guess, was it's an epic fantasy series by Elizabeth Hayden called The Symphony of Ages, like a nine book series. And that entire thing, there's one character where she writes his dialogue in a way that like, you can tell he's got a really almost like a Scottish accent, even though it's in a fantasy yeah. world. But yes. he was the only character in this massive epic fantasy series who had that. And I could right. hear his voice in my head better than any other characters because of that. Well, that's great. See, yeah, now she's done the trick. She's done the bit that, that makes mm -hmm. that work. Exactly. There you go. Right. Yeah. The only reason I can spell half of the things I know how to say in Cajun are, you know, Gambit. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, X-Men Comics. That's right. <laughs> and and X-Men Animated Series. I remember uh, like, oh, my God, that's going back, though. Yeah. The guy, whoever did the voice of Gambit. Oh, you're so good. But I heard they're bringing that show back. I heard they're going to re-pick it back up. Excellent. Excellent. Mm. I'm all for it. <laughs> a buddy of mine was a director on it years ago. Really? That's awesome. Yeah, cool. yeah, yeah. That's cool. All right. Number eight on the list. Avoid detailed descriptions of characters. 100% yep. agree. 100%. This one's a big one for me. Very yep. big one. That's right. I actually did a trick once to some people where I opened an opening chapter of the book and they didn't like the way I described one of the characters, right? They said I overdid it. And I said, okay, mm -hmm. cool. What about the main character? Did I overdo it on the main character or was that good, too much, too little? And the answer I got was like, no, the main character was fine. The main character was great. And I said, are you sure? <laughs> and because I didn't describe the main character at all. That's great. And it was written in third person, too, so That's it wasn't great. even in first. That's right? perfect, of course. All right. Yeah, I like to use, uh, like, smarmy things, like, that pop in my head, right? <laughs> so I've got a novel. It's not been published, but I've got a novel where I've got my main character sitting in a bar, and there's these drunk college kids, right? Yeah. And so the way I describe them without going into great detail is I describe them as dude bro number one. There you go. Had a polo <laughs> with his hat backwards. Dude right. bro number two had a polo with his hat backwards. And you're getting the image, right? That's like, right. I, don't, that's right. I just went through that's dude right. bro number, you know. Right. That's right. That's right. Not exactly. Or I'll cheat and I will have a character like I won't. I'll try to subtly slide in who they might look like, right? So I have a character in my Blade Mage series where when he's introduced, train. the only real description... Oh, train. We've got a train ad. Oh, train! <laughs> this train. story will have to All wait. Right, train! Train! train. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> yes. Yeah, baby. <laughs> the Midnight Special. Are you dreading your next visit to the dentist? Do you have trouble remembering things almost as if your secrets are well buried? Does winter in Chicago sound like murder to you? Then perhaps you should check out Hollis for Hire, an anthology featuring the slick but morally strong Nate Hollis as your guide. See him through the eyes of his original author, the best-selling Anthony Award winner Gary Phillips, as well as New York Times bestseller Sarah Paretsky, Edgar winner Naomi Hirahara, Deadly Inc. nominee Sarah M. Chen, Scott Adlerberg, 
and our very own Philip Dreyer Duncan. Hey, that's me. In my Blade Mage series, there's a character who's introduced, and I describe that he's in a very fancy suit, I believe. And instead of describing anything else about him, when they start talking, the main character says to him, they hadn't seen each other in a few years or whatever, Mm. right? So he just makes the comment like, you don't look any more like Michael Jordan now than you used to claim. And the guy responds and says... I don't use the Michael Jordan thing anymore. These young kids don't all know who he is. Now I tell people I look like Idris Elba. And the main character says, you don't. (laughs) And that's it, right? But it it gives you enough to conjure an image, right? That's right. You can do things like that. You don't have to over-describe. You can use the kind of smarmy, like, he looked like a couch potato. People know what you mean, right? Right. Right. (laughs) No, but they, they conjure up shared images, which is great. I'm all for that kind of shorthand. Oh, really? I mean, you know, listen, for the newbies... You can pretty much open any Elmore Leonard novel, especially the older stuff, La Brava, Unknown Man, number 89, of course, or the short stories, uh, which became the the Western, uh, 310 to Yuma. And you'll see that sparing use of descriptive detail. And uh, you'll also see it in, uh, there's a series of books. I'm a fan of the uh, Parker Ice novels uh, written by mm-hmm. uh, Donald Westlake writing as Richard Stark. And there's just these brief, First of all, there's almost no interior dialogue with Parker in these books, which is kind of fascinating because he's totally, you know, explained through his physical action. But occasionally, uh, Westlake would give some kind of description of him, of the character himself, but this very spare and lean. It's just, I, I just can't emphasize enough how much that's a great kind of uh, school for this kind of uh, work of describing your character. Yeah. Or method, I guess that's the word I want. Method describing your character. All right, number nine on the list. Don't go into great detail describing places and things. Uh, This, for me, is the same one again, right? Yeah, but if you're building a world, what do you do, right? Mm. Yeah, I mean... Don't you have to break that rule? You do a little bit, but you can still make it commonplace, right? So, like, Mm -hmm. this uh, epic fantasy I just wrote, right? Mm Mm-hmm. You know, I have a scene where I'm having my characters walk into a tavern. Like, really, at right. that point, just saying that almost, I could be done because everybody has, can conjure up that image, right? Now, I might want to yes. throw in a few yeah. other things, you know? So, like, right. the scene that comes to mind is I have them walk into the tavern. I don't know that I described the tavern so much as the patrons, right? So, mm-hmm. they walked into the tavern. They noticed the lone woman scrubbing a counter, three ruffians sitting at a table in the corner. Yeah, I don't know that I really had to describe the tavern in that yeah. scene to conjure the right image, right? Right, right. So, is it the cartoon rule then? You only describe the stuff that you can tell is drawn different <laughs> than the background because it's going to move? Uh, yeah, I guess in a way. I guess yeah. in a way you yeah. can say that. But you're right too, Gary, because there are a lot of people, especially like in that epic fantasy realm where they love the world building. But I yeah. just think it's important to, I think it's important for the young writer to know like, you can write everything down, but you don't have to put it all in your manuscript, right? So there if you, you want to have right. this expansive lore, you, right. you build it through conversation and you build it through action. Yeah, that's right. There you yeah. go. For epic fantasy in particular, and uh, I was going to use Lord of the Rings as an example. So to me, there's a difference between like you gave the example of walking into a tavern. I don't need to know that there are three tables directly in front of the door and there are boots right. over to the left and a counter mm-hmm. to the right. like. 
that doesn't matter. The layout right. doesn't matter. Where people are sitting doesn't matter. But like when you have something like a fantasy world, so like with Tolkien describing the Shire, and then mm, like yeah. you have a place like Lothlorien where right. the types mm-hmm. of trees mm-hmm. and the, the flets they have, like that is super important. And like he calls back to it later when Sam has a Malorn tree that he plants in the Shire. Like that is a super really cool detail to mm-hmm. include. And it it is something a reader can remember and like be touched by. Like the Tolkien podcast I listened to just like read that um, snippet of that chapter in one of their episodes recently. And like, I'm a huge fan of Lord of the Rings. Like just reading that paragraph, like brought tears to my eyes because like I have such a connection to it, but like you can do that when it's an important detail like that. Like it's, it's, it's differentiating between what's important and what's not important. That's right. There you go. That's nice. All right. Number 10 on the list. Try to leave out the part that readers tend to skip. And then he sums it up with my most important rule is one that sums up the 10. If it sounds like writing, I rewrite it. There you go. Yeah. And those two do kind of go together, right? Yeah. Some people like so JH has an example. I don't think she skips a single word in a book when she's reading it. I don't. <laughs> but like I will catch myself if there are long, long paragraphs mm-hmm. every once in a while. I'm like, yeah, OK, I'm just going to pop on down. Right. Yeah, yeah. I guess, like, as a reader, I'm always afraid, like, there's going to be something in that paragraph that's important that I'm going to miss. Yeah, I think that's fair. I'm just trying to think for a good way to frame this for the budding author, right? Yeah. Again, when you're sort of new to it, you tend to overwrite. You tend to Mm -hmm. not have confidence in your readers is really where Mm -hmm. you're not confidence in yourself Mm -hmm. that the reader is going to understand you. Yeah. And I think you have to assume your reader is intelligent. And just hit your beats. You don't have to over-describe everything. Yeah, I think a good rule of thumb, and this is only through practice, you can write long, but man, you're going to have to, listen, you just have to be cold-blooded about how you chop it down. But it only comes through practice. You know what I mean? I don't know how else you get there, right? Yeah. Yeah. One thing that I do, and I kind of did this a little bit naturally, but now I sort of intentionally do it. Mm. I genuinely do not care in my first draft if I describe a single thing, Mm. Mm. right? Mm -hmm. This is what's happening. This is what's being said. This is the conversation, dialogue, 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 action, 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 dialogue, dialogue, dialogue. And then what ends up happening is when I finish that first draft, I'll come along and I'll realize like, okay, maybe I should describe this scene a little bit more like this, you know, where they're at, what they're doing. And I'll kind of piece that stuff in rather than just dumping it all on the page in the first draft. That way I'm doing less chopping and more adding feels feels better, I think. Yeah. All right. Well, that'll be our tools segment. And like I said, if you're new to writing, there are worse things that you could do than to take these 10 rules as religion. But again, as you start to learn and get your chops, as Gary pointed out, every rule is meant to be broken. Mm -hmm. That'll be our tools segment. All right, for this week's Creatives on Fire segment, I thought it would be fun since we have Gary on with us to just to talk a little bit about what it's like working with Hollywood. So, Gary, the floor is yours, man. Well, in this end of it, I've fallen into working, or it was my first experience in the writer's room on a specific show. But to reel it back, all the way back, 30, wow, almost 30 years ago, my first novel through a series of very specific incidents was optioned by HBO. 
And at that stage of the game, nobody at HBO was going to give me the go-ahead to go ahead and write the script. But I had sure. those meetings. I had the uh, lunches on the lot, blah, blah. But then we got a director assigned who at that time was kind of hot, uh, a guy named Thomas Carter. He'd started out as an actor. He was on the, on the show called The White Shadow. And he had transitioned into becoming a director. And he, he you know, did some theatrical stuff. And he was known for doing pilots. I believe he shot the pilot of Miami Vice. So he was, always, he was kind of known as the guy who had the magic touch for pilots. And uh, this is my, my first book called Violent Spring. As I mentioned, it was set in the aftermath of 92. And eventually a writer was brought in, and that all kind of went south. But it was a great learning experience, right? And now over a period of time, over these years, I've had a graphic novel option. I've had a short story option. I've had uh, two, three, no, a few more of my novels option. So I've always had a kind of roller coaster experience with Hollywood. Would you explain what an option is? Because I don't know that everybody would know what that is. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. Okay. Yeah, you're right. I shouldn't uh, gloss over that. That's exactly right. So an option is a certain amount of money as against a larger amount of money if, in fact, what they call, it always says in the contract, if, in fact, principal photography uh, roles. So what the option says is that this particular entity, HBO or Legendary Entertainment or whoever it is that's putting up the money for the project, you are now taking your book, your graphic novel, your short story, your treatment off the market for usually a year, sometimes it's 18 months. So in other words, it cannot be shopped anywhere else by your agent or your representatives. And in theory, in the 18 months, let's say a year or the 18 months that it's going to take that this thing is off the market, your book is off the market, a script is going to be developed, actors are going to be attached, and maybe the thing will go before the cameras. And so that's what that means. So the option means it's a certain amount of money against bigger money if, in fact, this project is made. In fact, this project uh, rolls before the cameras. That's what that means. And in, the, in this case, of course, it's you're taking existing material, existing property. So, for instance, I've, the option on Violent Spring was renewed. We ran out the clock, and but they were still interested at that point in doing it, and they renewed the option. Like I said, lately I had a short story option, which amazing to me that it even got option because I have no idea, you know, how they read it, you know, how they happened upon it in the anthology with some poor intern tasked that day with a very specific, <laughs> you know, set of criteria. And, and, and this, this story came up. I have no idea. And I, oh, this is great for the segment. Now, like I said, I've now worked in TV. I've now right before, literally like five hours before the strike deadline, me and my erstwhile writing partner, Walter Mosley, we turned in the draft or the second draft of our pilot to Apple TV. Apple had paid us some money to go write this idea that we pitched to them. Actually, they came to us uh, looking for a Western wheel. And it just so happened that I'd had a, this Western idea set against the period of Reconstruction. That's a whole other story. But anyway, we got, we got money for that. Now, I want to back up, though, for a second. A couple of years ago, I and a buddy of mine, another friend of mine, we concocted an anthology called Culprits. The heist was just the beginning. Now, the premise of this was an anthology, but kind of different in the sense that the stories were all linked. So in other words, the setup, the heist happens, and then the other writers we brought in, they were to take each character, each member of the crew, and you follow that character post oh, that's fun. the robbery. And of course, like all great heist stories, something goes wrong in, in, the, nice. yeah, in the context of the robbery. 
And in their short story, which essentially is kind of mm-hmm. a chapter, right, in the book, they could, the fallout could have something to do with the robbery or it could be something else entirely. And so then me and my partner then gathered those short stories or those chapters back together, did some uh, editing or asked them for certain edits to make certain things consistent. And then we wrote sort of these ending chapters to tie it all up. Now that anthology gets optioned. And again, had nothing to do with my agent, had nothing to do with my manager. Kind of out of the blue, we got this offer from, uh, you know, a very, you know, the people that did the, the night manager, and I guess they're doing the night manager too. And they've done, and the guy who's like the showrunner has done and the show. Oh, by the way, and the showrunner is the person who's the, usually the writer producer who has to oversee the whole show and say yes or no to whatever the plot line is going to be for that particular episode, which of course then is a bigger story arc. That story in the book, and now there's an audio book that we've done because we retained the audio rights. So we did the audio book ourselves. That story is set in Texas, and then it takes us out to California, and it takes us out to Maine and wherever, right? Because we follow the different characters, different crew members after the, after the robbery. But the outfit that paid us money, paid us money, mind you, to option our book, have reset it in England. As far as I can tell, it, it has almost nothing to do with our book. I mean, there's a little structural connection, right? The, the heist and things go wrong, but that's <laughs> kind of any heist story. But they paid us money, and, and we divvied that up money uh, accordingly to the writers who contributed to the book. And Richard and I get some kind of on-screen credit. And that's coming, apparently, from Disney Plus UK, I guess either this fall or, or sometime next year. That's cool. It's got Eddie Izzard in it. Yeah, but I think he only he's only in one episode. As far as I can tell, the casting and the scenarios are all completely different from our book. So this is a perfect segment to end on. Why did they option that book if, in fact, in the end, they were going to rewrite it totally? Why did they give us money? And they're going to give us more money, by the way, when the thing airs, we get more money. Why did they give us money if, in fact, they were just going to rewrite it anyway? I have no idea. (laughs) I'm not complaining, but I have no idea. (laughs) It's unfathomable to me. Me and Richard ask ourselves that occasionally. Well, why? What the hell? Now you did though. Uh, there you go. And they, oh, and they changed all the names. Changed change all the names, all the names. too. Names. You know, you did take a more active role in Snowfall, though, right? When that was called Snowfall. Oh yes, in Snowfall, which was which is a great experience. I was there for the show lasted six years. I was there for the last four years of the show, and yes, and yeah, by the way, part of my bumps along the way were as because of my contract and because of the WGA. But yeah, uh, for Snowfall, it was definitely more of an experience of helping to shape. Not only is longer story to go into now, but there are certain characters who I fell in love with. I mean, you know, of course, there's our main character, Damson Idris, who plays Franklin Saint, who's, by the way, British. But there's just a couple of characters who, one character in particular, uh, Leon Simmons, I just so identified as not quite the right word, but as a character I could, I could inhabit because he moved from being sort of the, the enforcer, the gangster, you know, the hitman for his buddy Franklin and because then there's an episode where he inadvertently kills a child, and of course this messes them up, he then becomes more self-aware, and he starts to understand, look, I've got to do something different than be this drug dealer. I've got to do something uh, to help my community not tear it down. And to me, that character is so, I don't know, embodied, I suppose, ideals of mine that I just, whenever I got a chance to, even in the room, just pitch something on him, and, or certainly a couple of times when I got to really write something, you know, put it in his mouth and see it uh, come to life on screen. It was just 
it was just seventh heaven, man. It was just, it was just the best. It was just the best. All right, cool. Well, Gary, where do the people find you? <laughs> they can look for me here. They can look for me there. Uh, <laughs> I have very little social media presence. I have a Facebook page and uh, I do have a website, gdphillips.com. So I guess they can find me there. Or better yet, as we would say as pulp writers, look to the sky. <laughs> <laughs> One Shot Harry is available now. You should get it so that you can read the sequel when it comes out next year, Ash Dark is Night. And in October, the Unvarnished Gary Phillips, a Mondo pulp collection from Three Rooms Press. JH, where do the people find you? They can find me on my website, jhfleming.net. I'm on pretty much all the social media. My folk band is now on all the music sites. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music. Band is Wildwood Minstrels. First singles out now. And I'm also on Fiverr as an editor. Are we going to have Chris add part or all of the song for people to hear at the end? Um, Maybe like the opening or something. All right. Mm. Nice. All right. Well, then you might hear that. What was that title again? It's a traditional folk song called Black is the Color. There you go. Very nice. And Chris doesn't want to talk to anyone. So sorry. All <laughs> you get is him on the show. And I am, as always, Philip Dreyer Duncan. You can find me at philipdreyerduncan.com. You can find my books at places books are sold. And you can find the podcast <laughs> at futurebestseller.com. Gary Phillips, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a blast. Thanks for having me. It's been a very cool thing. Mm -hmm. We'll have yeah. to have you back soon. Absolutely.